Okay. All right. Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. AP Andy is in Mexico and or Guatemala right now. Um, Sean is recording something else today that I'm sure you're going to like. So it's just me here, along with my esteemed guest, Daniel Denver. How you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I really enjoy your podcast. If you guys don't know about it yet, it's called The Dig, presented by a Jacobin. <laughs> and uh, I, the way I describe it to people is like, kind of, what if NPR, but socialist? You kind of have that same like Ira Glass vibe. And it, if, if you're not really paying attention, you're like, oh, yeah, this is NPR. And then you listen to what you're saying and you're like, oh, this is Mad Socialist. So, yeah, cool. N- NPR form, commie content, uh, chill, chill, low key NPR vibes, but with with the socialist content that you are accustomed to from various other more high energy podcasts. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, maybe after we, you know, overthrow the bosses and, uh, expropriate everything we'll have like some kind of um international public radio that you can be in charge of exactly yeah yeah and then i actually so npr will just actually be socialist npr that will be redundant to say Mm -hmm. socialist npr because of course npr will be socialist under socialism oh you're tempting me you're taunting (laughs) me with this i can taste it that's gonna be so good when all these like moms driving around in their volvos are just listening to socialist npr and then the children are do you know this term in public radio backseat listeners that's what i oh. if you grew up with your parents oh, listening to npr and yes. had the backseat of the that's Volvo, me, yes. like i did i was a backseat Same. listener <laughs> and you have that morning edition like song like it, it, it like has this like kind of proustian association with childhood yes. then then you are you too are backseat listener oh man i could smell the lattes <laughs> from here in the back of my mom's volvo no it's like it's very soothing like my mm. friends make fun of me for listening to npr sometimes but i'm like like, this is my youth, yo. This is I grew up on this. Yeah, you don't understand. This is where I come from. This is my culture. Sometimes I just need it, you know. Yep. I need to know. Yep. And some of some of it's fine. Yeah. It's an, it's also like an interesting view into liberal thought yeah. a little bit, like the good and the bad parts of it. I listened to more of it before Trump. Like um like I listen to a lot of NPR. Even I've been a socialist since like the late nineties and when I was a teenager, but I still listen to NPR because I consume you know, left media and mainstream media, because I think that's generally a healthy mix. But after Trump, something about their tone started to bug me in a way that it had it before. Just like, oh, oh, oh every, how's everything going? Good? Okay. All right. And it's like, <laughs> oh, my God, the world is on fire. Yeah. Um, and that dissonance. But I, I do love like, like on the media, I think is often very, very good. Um, and uh, and sometimes if you just want like the new, like what happened today, you know, on the left, we don't have a lot of that yeah. yet. We need we need a left leftist daily newspaper. There were I was talking to my friend who studies, um, uh, like Jewish American history amongst other things, and there were two. If I remember correctly from my conversation with him last night, there were two Yiddish like hard left dailies in the early twentieth century, and we don't have a single. English hard left daily oh, today. You that's know? so sad. Well, I feel like the majority report is kind of good for that, yeah, actually. Like yeah. the way that I kind of describe or sell it to people, it's like the furthest left daily news show that you can go to for like the normal political news that everyone's talking about yeah. and a bit of commentary without having to watch like fucking MSNBC or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's majority report. Democ- obviously, democracy now has been holding it down in that space for. Oh, yeah. Since when? Like the mid 90s? A while. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's all good. What was I going to say? I forgot. Um, but anyway, you're in the city promoting your book right now. Yeah. Very cool. Great event on Friday. Um, I, God, I'm, I'm the worst. I don't have it, but I don't have it right in front of me. So I'm going to fuck up the complete title. I can, I can hold it up for you from across the room. All right. All right. So <laughs> we are talking with Daniel Denver about his new book, All American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Yeah. It's you a need, good title. You need those humble, like not ambitious subtitles, you know, just no. yeah. the, the, the subtitles just supposed to be like, yeah, this is the book that explains everything. So please buy and read the book. I mean, I I would pick it up if I saw it in the store. Yeah. And it looks nice as well. The, ti- it does. the cover's good. Yeah. It's like America, but danger. Exactly. America, but be careful. Which is the correct way to think about mm-hmm. America. America and be careful. I mean, that's our whole deal. But, uh, you know, not everybody's quite on that, on that ride yet. So um, you've been in the city promoting your book. Um, how has that been going did you have a good time yeah yeah we had a good turnout and i was in conversation with aziz rana who is a scholar of american history who i like a lot and who influenced my approach to this book a lot and who very generously read like 2.3 drafts (laughs) of the book and so to be in conversation with someone who i respect so much who read my book so closely was a great experience Hell yeah. I mean, I'm just excited when I talk to anyone who has clearly been listening to my show and paying attention. Yeah. Because I just still feel like nobody cares what I have to say ever. So to, yeah, somebody that you whose work you are also a fan of, like, fuck yeah. You know what? I actually did have that experience recently when I met the musician Heather Fortune from Wax Idols, who I'm a big fan of. And then she told me that she's listened to my show a little bit. And I was like, oh, my God. I love you had you. that like reciprocal fan situation. Yeah. That's nice. That's yeah, warm. That's yeah. a that's really wholesome content. Yeah, it was, we, we hugged. We talked. It was great. We broke down. I'm probably going to have her on the show soon. Get a little uh, some, some more goth socialist women together in a room. Good things happen. Yeah, I think usually. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> so, OK, back to your book. Um very basic question to start out with. Um, why did you decide to write this book on this topic and why now? Well, I mean, I have a few answers to that question. One is just that it seems like a very fundamentally important question uh, is the one that I try to answer in this book, which is how did immigration politics help make Donald Trump perhaps the most anti-immigrant president in American history president? So like, what what was it about how immigration politics have played out that allowed for Trump to make anti-immigrant politics the center of his presidential campaign that he then won and became president. So that was like the basic question that I think is an important one that I wanted to figure out with this book. And then speaking on a more personal level, I've been involved in immigrant rights activism and then journalism for a long time. I was involved in the big immigrant rights movement that exploded in 2006 after the Sensenbrenner bill, the super anti-immigrant bill that passed the House in December 2005, which led to millions of immigrants in the streets the next year, uh, including like literally, I think a million in LA, huge numbers in Chicago, New York. Um, this, that whole moment, uh, I was working as an organizer in, and that had a huge impact on me. And then when I got into journalism, I kept covering immigration 
off and on amongst other things over the years. And then when Trump came about, I was kind of, I had already developed this analysis being observing immigration politics as it had developed since the mid 2000s. And I started thinking through that analysis in terms of a book to explain where Trump came from. Word. Yeah, I feel like uh, for a lot of liberals, it kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Like, how did this happen in our wonderful country when... This is not normal. Yeah, this is not okay. We want to go back to brunch. When in fact, like, you know, this is a manifestation of currents that have existed in this country for a very long time um, on the on the right, as well as the nominal left yeah. Or the quote unquote opposition party. The radical center. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, the establishment is deeply complicit along with the radical right in creating the moment that allowed for Donald Trump to become president, especially, you know, you go back to the, uh, an alternative title of my book could be instead of all American nativism, how the bipartisan war on immigrants explains politics as we know it, it could have been Trump, Obama, Bush, and Clinton did it. Uh, like, I mean, it, it, that that is a bit uh, of an exaggeration, but it, there's a lot of that argument in my book, because when you look at immigration politics specifically, these establishment figures for a variety of reasons helped the far right identify immigration as a problem and increasingly radical crackdowns as a solution. And so, in you know, when Bill Clinton takes office, there's around, I think, 3000 Border Patrol agents we have nearly 20,000 today. There was just a few miles of fencing on the border in the early 1990s. Now we have, I think, more than 650 miles today, most of it built since 2006, thanks to the Secure Fence Act of 2006, signed by George W. Bush, but voted for by who? Well, senators, including Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Mm-mm. Joe Biden. And so the idea that the border is insecure and that Im- the immigrants crossing it and the drugs that they're bringing and everything, that this poses a, a a criminal threat, a social threat, an economic threat, and then under Trump, really, this kind of like great replacement white genocide existential threat. This idea is built up in terms of the, the politics of it and in terms of the institutions of repression that Trump now wields. It was all built in significant part by his, nor, you know, quote unquote, normal bipartisan predecessors. Yeah, I think you have a quote in your book from Bill Clinton where he says something that's shockingly similar to what Trump said when he was like, oh, they're not sending their best. They're sending rapists. They're sending drugs. Some of them are good people. Bill Clinton's like, some of them are guilty. Some of them are innocent of the crimes they've been accused of, you know, when immigrants get accused of crimes. But they're all guilty. All the undocumented ones are guilty of the original crime of crossing the border. I'm like, damn, Bill. Right. That quote's incredible. Uh, I, I can read I, Every day, illegal aliens show up in court who are charged. This is Clinton, a 95 radio address. Some are guilty and some surely are innocent. (laughs) And surely some are innocent. Some go to jail and some don't. But they're all illegal aliens. And whether they're innocent or guilty of the crimes they were charged with in court, they're still here illegally and they should be sent out of the country. He also said, our nation was built by immigrants, but we won't tolerate immigration by those whose first act is to break the law as they enter their country. So you have like this defining of undocumented immigrants as as illegal, which very easily shades into, especially with the rise of the war on crime in the 90s, like criminal. Like illegal people are also criminal people. Yeah. Yeah. So like, let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I feel like 
the dominant narrative that's come from both Democrats and Republicans has been, you know, immigration is great. You just have to do it the legal way. Right. But like, I've looked at the numbers and the kinds of restrictions and the kinds of waiting periods that they impose on people. Like, there's basically no fast legal immigration for working class people. For, of course, if you're rich, you can pay like $10,000 or whatever to get a green card an immediately. An investment visa or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, there, there's no line really to get in. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but if you like are eligible for uh, you're Mexican and you're eligible for, let's say, and you're eligible for legal immigration because of a relative you have in the United States, and you want to reunite, reunite with your, your family. Um, that can cause, that can, that will take years and years and years, like up to, I think, like 19 years in some cases. So there's no real legal avenue for many people who who have a legal right to to migrate to the U.S. And what you identified is key, like this, ident- this, this, this notion that like we're a nation of immigrants that's actually open to the world as long as you come the right way and that the problem is, quote unquote, illegal immigrants who come the wrong way. Because this all rests on massively obscuring American immigration history. Like basically since the foundation of the United States, the United States was organized around a racist population politics. People weren't even really considered immigrants. White people by and large from Europe were considered settlers who were coming here to, in a very methodical way that the federal government was organizing, move the Western frontier outward piece by piece. And, And so immigration wasn't a problem. Immigration was a solution in the sense because settlers were needed to hold the land being dispossessed from indigenous people. And then it's only in the late 19th century. Um, really, you have like the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. And then the following decades, Asian nationality after Asian nationality is barred from entering the country. Then the 1920s, you have uh, sharp restrictions put on Southern and Eastern Europeans, including very much Jews. And during all of this time in the twenty early and mid 20th century, the U.S. is explicitly U.S. business and government is turning to Mexico to pick up the slack. So there's low wage laborers basically shut off from Asia and squeezed off from Europe, and Mexicans are recruited in huge numbers. And it's U.S. business and government that institutionalizes Mexican migration as a basic feature of the American economy, and then suddenly, in basically 1965 and 1976. All of a sudden, first ever restrictions on Mexican migration are put in place. And so it just keeps happening, but is declared illegal. And before that, so it was nothing really that, that Mexican, obviously there've been changes in Mexican immigration over the years, but the rise of the idea that Mexicans are illegal immigrants has very little to do with any particular change in Mexican migration patterns and everything to do with the change in the government, how the government approached them, suddenly classifying this pre-existing migration stream as illegal. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Um, where did this shift come from? Because I'm sure that they weren't uh, they weren't just letting Mexicans immigrate in order to be nice, no. right? They wanted to exploit their labor. And then suddenly a shift came. Um, did, did the capitalist class, did the bosses just realize it might be a better deal for them if the people, if the immigrants here were, um, criminalized and scared and more easy to exploit? Like where, what drove this shift? It was driven, like, I think that's how it played out for capitalists, but I don't think it was necessarily 
capitalists who push, pushed for this. In fact, it was a – so Mexi- there's a crackdown on Mexican immigration at the same time as the rest of it, immigration law is liberalized. Like American immigration law is officially racist until 1965 based on you know that we're according the amount of visas per country based on what sort of nationality you are. And so that's only ended in 1965. But in 1964, the Bracero program, this massive guest worker program, Mexican guest worker program, comes to an end. And that's in significant part because of criticisms from organized labor. And, you know, there are a lot of reasonable criticisms because it guest work, the Bracero program in particular and the guest and guest worker programs in general are extremely exploitative. So that comes to an end and, uh, and the Mexican migration continues, and the way it, it, it functions for for capitalists in terms of the what uh, forget the the scholar's name. He talks about the deportability, the deportability status as being you know what allows for this like extra level of exploitation of immigrant workers to take place. But on the other hand, businesses have also shown that they're extremely interested in legalizing workers and being able to exploit them as legal and then they don't have to worry about the legal hazards of employing undocumented immigrants. So the 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 the, the interests of business as business understands them is one question. They're complex and it depends on industry. Um like agriculture for example example really wants guest workers, but they're actually okay now with, you know, guest worker programs that would lead to legal status. They just want access to the they're desperate for the the low wage labor. What I think is, is is a more important issue around how to think about immigration politics in the context of American capitalism is the political function it plays. And the political function it's consistently played um, is to displace anxiety about about the economy and the future of this country, about insecurity in all of these general all these general and specific senses, on to the insecurity of the border and the threat posed by immigrants. So displacing concern over a country with gilded age level inequality and stagnant wages for decades. And in the 1990s, just this uncertain sense of what America's role in the world is after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, you know, the rise of a unipolar world order. There's all this general anxiety of like what, what, what the future is supposed to be beginning in the 1990s when nativism as we know it really explodes. And 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 the way that border and immigration politics is really to fix that anxiety onto the embodied figure of the immigrant and the place where they're violating American sovereignty, the border. And, you know, that that's not always happening. That's often happening in kind of this complex, like functional way, but sometimes it really is um, more conspiratorial. Like there's this great, by great, I mean horrible, um, uh, memo, from Rahm Emanuel when he was a senior advisor in the Clinton administration. And he makes it very clear that the focus on immigration is precisely to, to displace people's anxiety around, around trade and globalization, which we're seeing a lot like Pat Buchanan runs a remarkably successful primary, I mean, failed, but remarkably strong failed primary Republican primary in 1992 um, and is very much in the mix in 1996. Ross Perot is also articulating this kind of incohate anti-NAFTA sentiment. It's a big deal in the 90s. And the Clinton administration for that 
in part for that reason, really tries to, it benefits the Clinton administration to make the issue one of of immigration. And yeah, I'm, I feel like it's around page 64, maybe. That's why I wrote down my note oh, about yeah. Ross Perot. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... Um, he portrayed, he described um, people, immigrants, as like illegal crime, basically. Yeah. yeah, he said, so yeah, I can paraphrase what he said. He has this memo where he's like, to Bill Clinton, you know, if we want to keep relations with Mexico positive and, and trade relations positive with Mexico, then we have to make a point of cracking down on illegal trade, i.e. humans and narcotics. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Like, uh, like there's absolutely no difference between yeah. a human being with a life and family and a commodity. Right. But like, basically, that's true under capitalism. Yeah. And the drug war played, play, you know, it, it is a, bi- a decently big part of my book and has played a big role in this as well, because, you know, drugs are, you know, the, the war on drugs is a force that gives the United States a sense of purpose in the world after the collapse of of the Cold War and also helps to define the threat as the threat of the the other, whether we're talking about like the, the black inner city drug dealer who's kind of threat at home, but is still an outside threat from the perspective of the of the white suburb or, you know, the, the Latin American trafficker on the other side of the border. In all cases, it's this array of of racialized others on the outside, whether inside the United States or outside of it, who are like posing this this threat. And then immigrants are like the a a a vector for that threat. And the same and then the same kind of logic is is reproduced by the war on terror, where the the border becomes the site of potential terrorist threat. Mm-hmm. So again and again in, the the nativist movement is 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 a core feature of US politics from the 1990s on but it what sort of threat is what sort of immigrant threat is being emphasized tends to be responsive to the broader broader political changes in the country and so by Trump you really get to the immigrant threat being one of total existential threat around ra- the 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 anxiety around racial replacement and white genocide. Yeah. And it's removed so many levels from its material origins, Mm -hmm. which is what makes it so hard for a lot of people to understand the rise of Trump. I mean, self-included, right? Like I can look back to history at the material origins of race and racism. And I can look at, you know, people living white working class, people living in depressed areas who might've voted for Trump, but that's not, most of the people who voted for Trump, there's also plenty of small business owners and just like rich assholes whose racism clearly has very little to do with economic deprivation. So like, we're not talking about a one-to-one correspondence here and it gets kind of confusing. But it doesn't mean that, yeah. And I think that's a a clear distinction to make is that because it doesn't have to do with economic deprivation per se, doesn't mean it doesn't have to do with economics. Mm -hmm. So often like this debate over like, you know, does did did economic anxiety cause the Trump election? I, I think it kind of gets like the question gets posed in a misleading way where it's like economic. Yeah. Were there especially in in Obama, Obama to Trump, you know, dist- districts in counties in the mid in the deindustrialized Midwest? You know, that's the place where we might see the more like white working class economic anxiety thing played out in in real terms, but also 
we can think about economic anxiety among the middle and upper middle class as well in terms of their the way their own defense of 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 elite especially with like the upper middle class and lower upper class the way of their own kind of like McMansion elite status is very much around organizing for racial exclusion like if you and that's a form of economic anxiety too even though it's not from the working class or from below it's from closer to the top not the very top but like up there and if you look at the history of anti-immigrant politics in California for example it really explodes anti-immigrant politics in the 90s and becomes enters the center of American politics as the whole with Proposition 187 passed in 1994, which would deny all kinds of social services, including education to undocumented immigrants. And you look at the sort of suburbs in California that it, that it, that it took really took off in, and these are the same suburbs that in decades prior had been organizing against school busing, against property taxes that were seen as transferring wealth from hardworking white people to undeserving and excessively reproducing lazy, poor, poor people of color, both black and, and, and Mexican very much in California. And, uh, so organizing against, against busing, against property taxes for property tax caps and against, uh, against, against fair housing, like, uh, housing integration. And so it's no surprise that these places that have organized their prosperity around this segregated distinction between between white on one side and black and Mexican on the other, and that their you know their identities as school parent status, as school parent, taxpayer, homeowner, these are fundamentally premised on on maintaining racial segregation and in a sense border politics become an extension of these politics of racial segregation. It's the same like the same logic behind black people can't move into this neighborhood as Mexicans can't come into the United States. But the problem is American capitalism requires those Mexicans as low wage workers. And so literally like in these same suburbs where people's lawns are getting cut by undocumented Mexicans, they, these same undocumented people become unfathomable as fellow citizens, even though their work is required as laborers. Yeah. It's kind of ironic. Like, I like the part in your book where you talk about how these people's prosperity was directly enabled by this kind of New Deal social democracy, but this social engineering was too good and it was hidden from them too well. So they thought that their prosperity was purely the result of their own hard work and not did not exist on the backs of exploited others. And... Therefore, they thought that they shouldn't have to share right. any of the fruits of their labor with anybody else. Right, right. The, yeah, I, that is a piece of analysis that I've long been obsessed with and something that we need to learn from if we're right now trying to build a sort of uh, rebuild a sort of radicalized social democracy that can take us in the direction of, of socialism, uh, if that if that's the path that many that seems to be the path that many of us are are on. So one one big problem we have to look out for and that that history teaches us is that the new deal ironic the new deal order ironically created reactionary political subjects that revolted against the new deal order and tore it down because you have the 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 the, the material the material the very materiality of the, the new deal order created suburbs lays the groundwork for white reaction on on so many levels and immigration is, is a case in point yeah like i worry now 
I feel like uh, the politics of the Democratic Party are at least more racially inclusive than they used to be. Definitely. But I worry that they're not quite there yet when it comes to immigration and a similar cycle could happen that's like more diversity capitalism, but still not ultimately liberatory for everyone in the world. I mean, what what makes me me optimistic about the prospects of left and and left in particular and left of center politics more generally in in the U.S. is the experience of the Obama administration when he really tried to ramp up, you know, maximum level deportations. Hit hit deportations record was justly denounced as deporter in chief as a result of that, and his crackdown sparked this mass immigrant rights movement that forced him to significantly curb his crackdown because the 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 especially young young immigrant activists young latino activists at at the lead of of the struggle against obama created a serious political problem for him because obama was trying to appeal to to the right and the center through these mass deportations but what these these activists made clear is that he couldn't that that strategy only made sense if he was going to take the 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 base of the party of which immigrants form a significant part for granted and they said no you can't take us for granted we're going to make your life hell until you stop deporting our families and that movement was incredibly successful and it's as a result of that movement that we see the the debate on the primary you know the the, the prime the, in the democratic primary over immigration moving radically to the left from where it was just 4 years ago let alone like 12 years ago just a different planet yeah and also like do you think that trump i mean i know that you think that cuz i read it in the book but like do you think that trump's insane like mask off yes. racist <laughs> nativism has driven this yeah. leftward shift mm-hmm. on immigration in the democratic mm-hmm. party yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, like, um, you know, m- mad respect to to Susan Sarandon. I wouldn't say I wouldn't celebrate Trump, but I w- but I wouldn't celebrate Trump for hiding the contradictions. But it is also just true that he has. Like that is descriptively just a fact. I mean, I'm it's not, not like we're accelerationists. We no. got the accelerationist timeline, and that's what we got to work with. Exactly, exactly. Like reality is accelerationist. Yeah. I'm not like cheering it on. Like I, um, you know, uh, like. I wanted Hillary Clinton to win, um, I, you know, I could, I, and I really dislike Hillary Clinton, <laughs> obviously. I mean, same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not an accelerationist, but yes, reality is accelerationist. And so there, we have to identify the silver linings and the contradictions that create opportunities for us to exploit. And what I see is about a, well, I guess now like 13 year kind of like dialectic that has led us to the political dynamics around immigration Today, so the basis of, of of the war on immigrants, it's a bipartisan war, is that it did have like a bipartisan constituency on the ground in the 1990s when it really exploded. Pop, Prop 187 passed, you know, over, with overwhelming white support, but also significant black and Latino support. The border crackdown in that began, I believe, in '94 in in El Paso with Operation Hold the Line was cheered in that overwhelmingly Hispanic city at the time. What happens in the the mid-2000s is that the contradictions within that consensus 
began to become less and less reconcilable. So it re- the, the story of the bipartisan br- basis of the war on immigrants breaking up for me really begins in December 2005 when the House passes the Sensenbrenner bill, which I talked about, which I mentioned earlier, I think, which would have an extreme anti-immigrant bill that would have criminalized mere undocumented presence in the country. Like right now, that's just a civil offense. Mm. Illegally crossing the border is a misdemeanor or a felony if it's a repeat offense. But just being in the country, like let's say you come and overstay a visa, that's just that's not that's not a crime. You, it, it, you're it's a uh, it's something that can be remedied by your removal, which is obviously horrible. That's deportation. But you you can't just for being here without authorization, you can't be sent to jail. Mm-hmm. This would have changed that, which would have been a radical intensification of the war on immigrants. It also would have criminalized aid to immigrants, which freaked out every social service group in the country. It was a bridge too far for the for the left side of the bipartisan consensus, and it doesn't pass the House, and instead it sparks this massive immigrant rights movement de- denouncing the extremism of the Republican Party. And so we start to see it fracture then with the Republican Party going in so far right that, that that it can't win Democratic support on some of these things, and the immigrant rights movement exploding in opposition. That intensifies under Obama when the his Obama's mass deportation campaign sparks this mass immigrant rights movement and sanctuary movement and movement to successfully resist local and state cooperation with ICE, which begins under Obama, not Trump. And then Trump, Trump sends this 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 polar process of polarization around immigration that's already underway into overdrive because he touches all these things that were once no, deemed somewhat normal with his toxic brand and so this 650 miles of fencing that Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama and Joe Biden thought it was like sensible, you know, politically sensible and 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 and, and plenty moderate like not right-wing extremists like a very moderate move to vote in favor of in 2006 Suddenly, 10 years later, with Trump re-describing that fencing as a wall, that for, that accelerates this polarization. And that's good because mm-hmm. the bipartisan war on immigrants doesn't have a bipartisan basis of support anymore. It's carried on in its most extreme form by the Republican Party. And of course, not all Democrats' elected officials are on board with this yet, but the base of the Democratic Party is overwhelmingly opposed to the, the war on immigrants and I think that's an incredible opportunity. Yeah, I, I was kind of hardened by some of the stats that you've cited on public support among voters for immigration, yeah. for more open borders, mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of times I get told, oh, well, this might be progressive. This might be a good policy, but it's not popular with the voters. Therefore, the left shouldn't harp on it because they're going to lose elections. Right. Yeah. And I like to be clear, like I'm. I'm for open borders because I think the freedom of movement is a is a very basic right, um, and I think that opposition to freedom of movement is incompatible with socialism. But at the same time, I, I'm not like my book's not arguing that that our candidates should be out there are arguing for open borders. I think they should be putting forward a politics that maximal maximally opens borders and maximally decreases immigration towards the end of ultimately open borders. But I think that like we don't want Bernie, for example, being out there like cutting a commercial being like, this is why America needs open borders. Because mm-hmm. right now the open borders frame is one that's controlled by the right. It's a qu- it's always a response to a, qu- the, a question posed by the right of, do you support open borders? 
and so instead, we, like we need to say, we we need to have candidates who are able to to say, no, I support the the immigrant working class in this country and their and their you know rights on the job and as and as as the fellow citizens that they should be treated as and your wall is actually just building a wall between you know american workers but but there is so even though i don't support even though i don't want candidates to go out there i mean maybe in certain districts they can go out and call for open borders like but i don't think we need that as a litmus test but what i do think is we need policies that maxim maximally open borders and that is what we see in bernie sanders immigration platform like he is he has a um i've written about this a bit in the past he has a uh he has like a good he has a good voting record on immigration but obviously he said some stuff that i wasn't thrilled with in in the past um yeah he called open borders a coke Coke brothers Brothers proposal and he said something like if you believe in a country called the united states you need to have borders but like that's true, actually. Like borders are a defining feature of, of a nation the nation state. state. Yeah. And I want to abolish borders, yeah. which I think is the same thing as opening borders completely. Like, yeah, uh, I've talked about this before on the show. Yeah. If you have a door uh, and it's always open, you can't close it. Is that the same door. thing? It's taking the door off its hinges. Yes, actually, it is. Yeah. And I'm a communist. I believe yeah. in international communism. Yeah. So, of course, I want to abolish borders, but I would never expect someone who's running for the democratic nomination in 2020 to have that position. Yeah. Like, you know what? We're going to abolish the borders. Yeah. It's just not, it's not, uh, it, it, but we, but what we can expect, but like you're, like you mentioned earlier, the American people wouldn't expect this with Trump in office, but the American people hold perhaps the most pro immigrant views in the history of this country. So there is a lot of room to push, a lot on this, and that's what we've seen um, with it becoming a basic norm amongst Democratic primary contenders, by and large, to support decriminalizing unauthorized border crossing. That's a big deal. Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, platform calls for the end of secure communities in 287G, which are actions that he can take on his own to dismantle the crimmigration system, the system that has made Every police, basically every police officer, jail, sheriff's office, whatever, into a front door to the to the contemporary deportation pipeline. He's pledged to shut that down. He wants to dramatically. He wants to increase legal immigration. He wants to have a program specifically for climate refugees. These are all things that open the the border more and allow us to get into a place hopefully where we can think of yet more radical proposals that like, for example, non-citizen voting, um, which I think that would, is an interesting thing that, that in more left leaning locales, we can start pursuing right now. Word. Yeah. I was going to ask you what you think of Bernie's current immigration platform and if there's anything that you would do to improve it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, and I, was in some discussion with the campaign but before it. And my sense is that a lot of really great immigrant rights activists were as well. So people, I think, pretty much saw it as, 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 as stellar, really. I mean, th- there are things that I support that are not 
in it, like non-citizen voting. But I think that's something that tactically that the radical left should probably be pursuing in localities first. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's Bernie has a lot of really smart people around him on immigration and has been in touch with the right organization. And that's why we see really important immigrant rights organizations like Make the Road getting behind Bernie this time. Um, you know, and it's, it, it's something that I, that, that I haven't thought through entirely yet, but I am, I am starting to work on a piece trying to explain how, if Bernie's the general, the, the democratic nominee in the general election, how we should talk about immigration because Trump is going to be talking about it. Yeah. So there's, he's going to have to talk about it very clearly. Um, He's also not incorrect in his instinct that at some point you want to pivot back to class conflict because there is there is a way about emphasizing class conflict that is anti-racist. That's saying, no, your enemy is not the immigrant. Your enemy is the 1%. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean he can dodge immigration because they're one that's not ethically possible. We have you know more than 10 million undocumented immigrants in this country, but also politically, it's just impossible. Trump is going to be talking about the border, the wall, the caravans, ISIS, the Muslims. It's, it, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no, there's no yeah. running from that in the general election. Yeah. Um, I want to come back to a left populist trade policy yeah. in a minute because I have more things I want to talk about with regard to that. But let's go back in time a little bit and talk about more about the origins of this modern day criminalization of migration and how it coincided with the neoliberal turn of the 70s, the defeat of labor, austerity politics, etc. Um, and I'd like to know how the political economy of that era led to this new kind of politics. And I'm especially interested, I mean, you, you named your first chapter scarcity, yeah. because real and perceived scarcity are major drivers of anti-immigrant sentiment and you know sometimes under the logic of the current system it's true right that undocumented workers can be used as scab labor the question is what do we do about it and i feel like a lot of people especially liberals want to paint all opposition to immigration as it's just racism right but the fact that there were mexican-americans um supporting crackdowns on undocumented workers including the ufw yeah at the same time that bosses were against them like shows that there's a more complicated picture yeah yeah so there's a lot to unpack there i guess i'll just start by like talking about the the ufw and cesar chavez's journey they and uh they chavez and other farm worker leaders see the the Bracero program and then and then undocumented farm labor as basically scab labor that's going to undermine their organizing in the fields. Chavez and others change tack because thanks to the rise of the 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 Chicano movement and the general kind of flowering of of Chicano and, and Mexican American activism in that time the the consensus change and the consensus changes to the understanding that undocumented Mexicans are are fellow workers, and that leads to a radical shift in 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 the farm worker movement's orientation, and then ultimately by 
the 90s leading up to 2000 when the AFL-CIO makes a big change. It's it's Latino organized labor that's at the forefront of reorienting the entire of the, Amer- the the entirety of American labor movement towards solidarity with undocumented workers because there's an understanding that it's that it's capitalists who set these wages in this context, not undocumented workers, and that organizing them into unions, making them into citizens, that it, that it's this very marking them as outsiders that allows for them to be used against citizen workers, that that's the enemy, not the undocumented laborer as a person. The actual enemy is their illegalization. So there's that whole fascinating history there with the, with the UFW. Yeah, we we went through some of that on our episode with Justin Agers Chacon. Oh, yeah. And he brought up some... to read his book for a while. It's really good. He brought up some really inspiring examples yeah. of times when um, workers in the U.S. organized in conjunction with right. immigrants and the undocumented, and they won major victories until eventually, you know, even the AFL-CIO came around on it. Yeah, yeah. Like, pe- people tend to... There's a good article by Daniel Teichner, who's a political scientist, and someone fine, I forget her first name, um, which is all about U.S. labor's history on immigration politics. And people often have this caricatured history that that American unions have always been anti-immigrant, which is just false. It's a very complex history. We have basically the more radical the labor unions, the more open to immigrants they often were. So you see the IWW and some of its biggest most successful organizing efforts, organizing people from every country imaginable. For example, in the um, the the Bread and Roses strike in that was in Lawrence, right? Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, nineteen whatever. Uh, we see the CIO organizing an incredible diversity of industrial workers that the A- that the AFL is not interested in at the time, and the AFL, who has this you know very narrow craft based exclusionary craft-based approach to to labor organizing, that exclusionary approach extends to their support for immigration exclusion. So you see a constant constant conflict within the labor movement over how to how to define just as in the American polity, there's this constant conflict over who are we the we the people, who the American people. You have a similar conflict within the labor movement over who are who are we the working class. And it's consistently the most radical forces that are pushing for the, the the most universal and broad definition of who the working class is. Yeah. And I think these historical examples are really important, too, to demonstrate the sort of practical efficacy of an internationalist working class politics <clears throat> where we're not just trying to score woke points or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's um, the the contradiction between woke symbolism and the materiality that racism operates through couldn't be more powerfully expressed by the Obama administration when you supposedly had, you know, all of the, you know, a presidency that would redeem basically all of the racial sins of this country actually just laundering this institutionalized monster. So I'm going to play devil's advocate yeah, for a second. Let's do it. I think it's important to see things from all sides, only not really. I'm being very disingenuous right now. <laughs> so why do you think there are people on the left who believe that restricting immigration is good for workers and the cause of workers' rights and ultimately 
the efforts to get socialism. I put socialism in scare quotes because I feel like we have very different ideas of what socialism really means. You know, I feel like oftentimes these people are really talking about sort of a social democratic uh market socialist autarky in one country where we make everything we need here and there's this like very workerist culture and you're kind of nurturing this in the crucible of like every country separately and there's it's not predicated on exploitation of resources from the third world yada yada um can you kind of like handicap this idea that this kind of supply side tinkering can uh lead put put workers in a better position to overthrow the bosses yeah and fortunately it's an incredibly marginal position like the few things that have been expressed on that have gotten a lot of attention because they were outrageous and published and you know pro a pro trump magazine say um but (laughs) well there are like social democratic parties of europe as well in europe it's a bigger yeah like in um in denmark i believe the social democratic party there is maybe the most anti- immigrant of them all yeah in europe it's more of a problem and assuming that it's not just racism like what where are Mm -hmm. they coming from yeah well i mean i think one they there are a lot of things they miss but one big one is just the role that racism and nativism and xenophobia have played under neoliberal capitalism they weirdly buy this not actually historically real version of neoliberal history that neoliberalism has been all about open markets and open borders, which is not actually how it's played out. We've seen the rise of neoliberalism as a system to protect markets from democratic control being accompanied by the rise of mass incarceration, border militarization, and mass deportation. Yeah, like it always seemed like those things were a naked attempt to distract people from the ravages of globalization and the free movement of capital, which is harder for people to grasp on some level than, you know, these are a bunch of people that you coming into the country and you need to punish them uh, and remain above them because otherwise they're going to take your jobs rather than looking above you at the people who are hurting all of you. Yeah, so people who are ostensibly on the left who support immigration restriction, they support playing into the politics of the neo the politics of neoliberal scapegoating of blaming everyone but the bosses for the problems that people are experiencing and that's entirely contrary to the interests of socialist politics. The 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 interests of socialist politics are entirely to create a broad we so that we can thus identify the true enemy and it's not the the other and it, 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 it's not the working class other it's the boss and there's all i mean this is all like wrapped up as well into kind of all sorts of like n- nor how to phrase it like this like nor pro normativity um leftism i think that also worries that like queer politics like are bad Mm -hmm. for appealing to working class people when in fact like normalness has always been a bourgeois project to discipline the working class working class is weird the working class is actually diverse so to try to put in, in attempting to put together this kind of like 19 
fifties style kind of like a Amer- like workerist American ideal. Like that's not actually appealing to the diverse American working class, the diverse and weird American working class that actually exists. It's appealing to people's own strange projections of what that working class is like, what's the actual political coalition you're going to put together by having some kind of anti-immigrant left in a country, in a country where the left-wing candidate who very well might win this primary and go on to defeat Donald Trump. If he wins this primary, it will be overwhelmingly thanks to his overwhelming support among Latino voters. What sort of coalition pragmatically do these anti-immigrant so-called leftists want to put together that excludes Latino voters? Please. Oh, winning one. I don't know. I feel like that's all definitely part of it. Um, but I feel like it's also just like a failure to envision a world beyond capitalism, markets, and the nation state. Because I think on some level, like, yes, they are following the internal logic of capitalism because yeah. they can't see beyond it, which is like, maybe that's fair. Like, I realize that the project of global socialist revolution seems crazy to most people, but I really do. I really believe that that's the only way to resolve all of these contradictions in the long run. Um, so that brings me to, okay, question on NAFTA. So trade policy. Um, so we all know that globalization of trade under deals like NAFTA opens the borders for capital and pits working class people in different countries against one another in a race to the bottom. Uh, But most of the opposition to this, like we've been talking about, has come from right wing parties and left parties really making right wing arguments who think that economic protectionism, uh, restricting capital and restricting the flow of immigration in many cases will provide some kind of shelter from the world market that they can use to defend their economy, defend their labor standards, defend their welfare state and the power of labor. Um, And I think a lot of the, I mean, the left is very weak. So like the only really coherent um, left opposition to this kind of globalization has come largely from anarchists and communists and people who want to overthrow the wage system entirely. Like, is there any coherent um, left populist trade position that doesn't ultimately lead to uh fascism and horror like i don't think that there is but i'm curious to get your take on it yeah and that's a good question because i think we probably need something on our roadmap that's in between where we are now and global communism so fair um but but what that is is it i don't know the answer to because you're 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 right that i think a lot of left critique of of globalization is often functionally protectionist at at present and i don't um but and because you're basically debating the people are basically debating the issue of 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 how we structure economic globalization under under capitalism and so if those are the terms of the debate the answers are going to be problematic but I think that there there are ways to make trade agreements. It's kind of like what what are the purposes? So in a more reformist context, what are, what's the purpose of a trade agreement? Is it to protect investment from 
democratic public control or is are fundamentally the interstate agreements on trade that we have should they be fundamentally about about global warming and reducing and, and eliminating carbon emissions or should they be about fundamentally and I don't think we're seeing this proposed in any way that I find satisfactory just reorienting the entire world system in the way that the new international economic order and kind of radical third world thinkers in the 60s and 70s were proposing. I don't think that there's a lot of, of, I don't think that there's like clear programs around this. I would love to read one. Yeah. Like I, I don't have a lot of clear answers on it either, but like whenever it comes up, we say, oh, well, they need to include protections for labor and the environment. But like... It always feels unsatisfying. Yeah. And like, what's the point of international trade if corporations can't exploit laborers in other countries and exploit weaker environmental regulations? Like, they're not making a profit out yeah. of being green. And ultimately, a left trade system, like right now, what we have is a trade system that really does pit first world against third world workers by redistributing jobs from like the u.s rust belt to countries like like china i mean everyone knows that and i think that's true on 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 some level uh but the thing is we we still do need redistribution to take place within the world system but it needs to be from the first world one percent to the third world 99 percent um like it is it is it it is correct that the first world has developed on the backs through the exploitation and expropriation of the third world so any sort of just world world system has to reverse that um but yeah. the proposals that we see mostly on the left right now are mostly around the issue of of, of protecting first world workers from the redistribution of their jobs to third world workers which, you know, which I get because like we're dealing with like American American politics and the people that they're appealing to are American people, but it doesn't. Um, but that only kind of like stops the bleeding of neoliberalism in this country and doesn't act doesn't answer the big question of how we organize the entire world system. Yeah, like it has to come from somewhere. Yeah, someone's got to be left holding the bag if we're still going to have capitalism. Mm. So, I mean, look, if you believe Marx, which most people listening to this show probably do, uh, value is only created by exploitation of labor and extraction of resources is another ingredient in that pie. And if that's the case, if you're exploiting U.S. workers less. The capitalists have to exploit other people more somewhere else. Otherwise, you're not going to have growth and the entire system is going to fucking collapse. At, and and that's going to come down on the poorest people first. So we're like holding a tiger by the tail here. Um, I also think it's tricky. I mean, we talked about this with Ross Wolf, but like the idea that we can favor restrictions on the flow of capital, but not on the movement of people Um under this current system, it's, I don't think that's ever going to work out for the left because people are capital. Right. Like it's inside all of us in a very yeah. creepy way. Yeah. And the right is always going to do that better than the left because they are ideologically unified on that question. Like they don't have to even pretend that they care about people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, there's, um, I mean, 
fundamentally the way the world is set up, world system is set up at present, present migration is, is required. It's compelled. I mean, one reason I support the right to migrate is because people should all migration can also be beautiful and undertaken as an act of self-determination or adventure or, or love or whatever. There, 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 there are plenty of nice ways that people can move around yeah, the world, as, but too often as it's we compelled. have been doing for all of human history, right? Like it's a totally ahistorical statement to say that most people want to stay where they are. Yeah. But people should be allowed to stay where they are. And that's too often not the case Yeah, right now. And so f- one f- basic thing that anti-immigrant nativist xenophobic politics do is that they function to obscure the historical conditions that create mass migrations. So it just, that's how immigrants are able to be figured as this threat that, because if, if the U S and Europe's role in producing mass migration was front and center, it wouldn't be the immigrant who was painted as the threat. So like you look at the 1980s with Reagan's dirty wars in Central America in his campaign to demonize and deport refugees from El Salvador, he had to attempt to deny them refugee status because giving them refugee status would be admitting that the government that he was supporting in El Salvador was in fact a brutal death squad government. And we see the same thing today with with Europe unable to understand its deep complicity in in through colonialism remaking the world in such a way that the the that the migration of colonialism from metropole to colony has now been reversed and we're seeing migration from post colony to the former metropole and so they're they're conceiving of this as the great replacement and replacement is literally what settler colonialism is about moving people from the metropole to the colony and substituting the the native inhabitant for the colonial transplant. And so the fact that they talk about migration from the third world, the decolonized third world to Europe, the post-colonial third world to Europe as the great replacement, it's just like this projection and conjuring of colonialism's past, but it can't be seen as such or else the analysis would be different. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there are people who maybe understand those things. Maybe, uh, like the role that the first world has played in creating conditions and push factors that may make people need to come here, um, you know, up to and including climate change. Right. And we've barely talked about that at all, but there's going to be an increasing number of climate change refugees as time progresses. And they might say, oh, well, that might be true, but like, that's too bad. Tough shit. Like, yeah. we need to protect our own now. And there, it is true, again, to capitalism's internal logic. Like, I see, um, it, conversely, this kind of um, radical liberal position emerging on immigration, um, often from people who believe MMT as, like, a way around the need to transition away from capitalism. Like, the government can just print infinite amounts of money mm-hmm. and spend it on social programs, jobs programs, whatever, and... That'll be fine. We don't need to expropriate the bosses. Um, I just, I don't see that being a real thing. But this idea that says our current system 
can accommodate an unlimited inflow of immigrants while maintaining the current state of capitalist democracy, uh, quote unquote democracy, and it will never put a strain on the welfare state or the job market. Um, And personally, I think we could certainly take a lot more people, but eventually there might be a number at which it would, at which people would be competing for scarcer and scarcer resources. Now, personally, I don't care because if this happens and it seems like it might, it's going to heighten the contradictions of capitalism and make the case that we need to change the system in order to meet everybody's needs. We need to start with that as the first principle, right? Like the Cliven, uh, the Piven Clower strategy. Yeah. That's the idea. If the system can't meet everyone's human needs, then we need to design one that can. Um, but then again, and disrupt it until you get the result. Yeah, exactly. But then again, there are uh, liberals or, sock dems who consider themselves pragmatists out there who say like we shouldn't even talk about that because that's something the right is going to use to stoke people's fears and if if uh if the system does crash if this does happen um we're going to go backwards and not forwards uh where where do you come down on that hmm i don't know if i'm gonna have a really satisfactory satisfactory answer on it could be wrong and and, and you could be right, and that the situ the, the contradictions just could remain so explosive that there are no no provisional resolutions anytime soon possible. I remain hopeful that some sort of prov- provisional resolution on the way to socialism. Is possible, I think, mostly because I think that has to happen to deal with carbon emissions in the window that we have. Like, we can't wait for capitalism to be overthrown to confront global warming, which is a problem because the current dynamic of ecological destruction that we're seeing is fundamentally rooted in capitalism. But if we say that we have to wait for capitalism to be overthrown to deal with global warming, I don't know that we're building socialism on the time frame that will make that realistic. So it's like this question of, of, of what, what can be accomplished in a context of radical reform short of a full rupture with the present system. And I think that a radical recognition both politically and legally of immigrants as, as as fellow citizens and thus part of an American working class arrayed against the 1% is necessary as part of that process because I finished my book by arguing that nas- right-wing nationalism and xenophobia are the most dangerous forms of climate denial. Because if we... Be- uh, the politics that holds that the future of the U.S., that its future well-being is somehow independent of the well-being of the rest of, of every other country on Earth is is a form of climate denial. That not only is our well-being, our future well-being independent of those of other countries, but that it's de- even worse, dependent on those other countries' subjugation to the U.S. run global order. That kind of thinking 
is precisely the opposite of the sort of global cooperation we need to deal with climate change. So I'm hope I'm hoping that there's um, that there's a way to manage that short of of the sort of full manifestation of contradictions that would lead to total system change because I don't see that ha- that's just that being on the horizon as soon as we would need it to, mm. to cut carbon emissions in the next 10 years because it was 10 years yeah. so soon. Yeah, I know. We don't have very much time. It's fucking terrifying. Like I would like, I would love to hear some like uh, more short term ideas for yeah. how to solve climate change yeah. uh, before overthrowing capitalism because it's really fucking scary. And right. like, I haven't really found any of them very convincing yet. Um, I mean, there are ways to solve it that are horrible. Like you talk in your book a little bit about ecofascism. Right. Like that is what I mean. Okay. It's scary now that Republicans don't believe in climate change, but when they do, that becomes even scarier. And we've, I mean, ecofascism is actually a history which goes back a long way. Some of the earliest environmentalists were also eugenicists, right. which you write about in your book. Madison like Grant. Cordelia Scaife May. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That fucking bitch. Yeah, she <laughs> she's a real shitty rich lady. <laughs> but they like really prefigured what's happening now, and uh, <clears throat> people think, oh, it's crazy. Republicans will never believe in climate change, but like it's gonna be pretty obvious pretty fucking soon. And I worry that um, they're kind of setting the stage and preparing people mentally on some level for the exterminist solution to yeah. climate change. Like fucking Jane Goodall was talking the yeah. other day about how we population. need to reduce the population. Like, mm, where do you think that's going to happen? Yeah. I heard she got a, a retweet from Laura Ingram on oh, that. God. Um, yeah. No, it, 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 what that would, what that ecofascism fascism would look like in a sense would be like an ecological corollary to far right. So-called race realism, right? Like, climate change is real and so what does the 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 white west acting in its own rational self-interest in this context of increasing scarcity and crisis require that would be the right-wing approach yeah I mean, mass mass extermination of, yeah. of human beings yeah and and as you mentioned the weirdly the the origin of the modern nativist modern nativist politics as we know them today is within environmental politics in the sense of of growing scarcity in the 1970s there's also budding environmental co- consciousness but which is heavily infused by hysteria over overpopulation caused in significant part by this book from i think 1969 called the population bomb mm-hmm. by paul ehrlich which is you know for people our age um it's very hard to understand how big a deal overpopulation was in the late 60s and 70s it was just mm-hmm common sense that if left unchecked human population growth as we knew it would lead to mass famine and chaos and all kinds of calamity and that was immediately though the sense the supposedly general sense of like oh we're worried about total human population becomes very much about the growth of particular people's Mm -hmm. population and feeds the early anti-immigrant movement. You have this group called Zero Population Growth, which was founded in response to the population bomb. This Michigan ophthalmologist named John Tanton becomes the president of it. He then leaves ZPG to start the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which is really 
to this day the flagship of this constellation of anti-immigrant organizations that he played a role in founding. And it was really amongst conservationists that it took off in the 70s. But soon thereafter, the environmental concerns recede because that's not in the 80s or 90s what's able to mobilize kind of a mass ba- mass anti-immigrant base. The environment's not what what gets people excited. What gets people excited is the more explicit r- idea of racial, cultural, and economic threat. But it is possible with that with global warming that we're going to see the reemergence of of the environmental threat narrative. Yeah, I mean it already has happened. Like Tucker Carlson has been going pretty hard on his show on the eco-fash line that, you know, immigrants, they're like polluting, they're dirty, they're polluting our natural resources or whatever. And like, I think it may become a real thing when we have scarcity that needs to be managed. Um, I mean, I think the only way to really manage scarcity in a way that's not exterminous and horrible is through some form of democratic central planning. Yeah, and the control over our democratic control over what what we make and how we distribute what we make mm-hmm. and what we do with our time fundamentally. Yeah. Otherwise like all, all the ways that we could solve this under capitalism seem really really bad to me. Like or or just unworkable because look we have the first world that used the earth and the environment as an infinite free gift when it was industrializing. And now there are developing nations that want to industrialize too. And do the same thing because that is the route to prosperity under the current system. And the first world is telling them they can't do that. And they're well within their rights to tell us to go fuck ourselves. Like, it's not fair. So, yeah. it, And then what's even less it, fair is if they do tell us to go fuck themselves and they exacerbate global warming, that because of the way the global order is organized will fuck them the most. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... It, what what are the responses? The response could be like, you know, the U.S. like cracks the whip and imposes some sort of imperial order on the world. I don't think we have the ability to do that anymore, which is a good thing. Um, the other way to do it is to kind of buy our way out of this problem by giving lots of technologies and grants and things to um, developing nations in order to develop uh, greener economies. And I don't know if the rate of growth is there to do that either. Um, I mean, I would rather do that, but um, I really feel like the only way out of this conundrum in the long run is to get rid of the the world market on which countries are forced to compete and introduce a more uh, cooperative, communalistic world system. Yeah. I mean, we can't, we can't depend on growth anymore. If you look at the, 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 the post-war years of extremely high growth appear to be appear to be over. Aaron Benadev, uh wrote a great two-part series on this for the New Us Review recently. And uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. It's very rare that uh, I, I feel like I'm still used to people just looking at me like I'm crazy whenever I talk about this stuff. So thank you. So to jump backwards a little bit and maybe a little bit back into your book, You write about some of the strange bedfellows in coalition on both sides of the immigration issue. Yeah. Trying to pass immigration reform or whatever they want to call it. Um, And there are a lot of people, even liberals, even today, defending immigration 
for the wrong reasons. Right. Like the idea that we're getting a good deal on workers we don't have to pay to educate and it benefits the economy or the idea that they do jobs Americans don't want to do, therefore it benefits the economy. I mean, I've got a relative who is a small business owner and somewhat conservative and was like, yeah, I understand I need, we need immigration because I couldn't afford to pay people uh, more to do these jobs. Yeah, that's not a... Which is that, not a good reason. That That's the argument that can be used in an ad by anti-immigrant forces. You know, it's not good. <laughs> so, like, what do, we, what do we do with that? Yeah, I mean, another problem in liberal immigration politics is a portrayal of, you know, certain types of immigrants as the good, noble person that's almost, you know, a... a a super citizen in, in waiting that, that sacrifices for their family in these extraordinary ways by working harder than any Mm -hmm. American ever would. And what people, what liberals don't seem to realize when they're doing that is that they're setting up this kind of good immigrant, bad immigrant narrative that almost requires the, the criminal alien as its counterpoint. And that ends up becoming the entire dynamic within which Obama's deportation policies are organized, for example, like felons, not families. And this construction of of immigrants as either saints or Satan is is, is another liberal trope that's that's not helpful. Instead, I think reorganizing it around immigrant, immigrant labor and the question of, of worker solidarity, is a lot less patronizing and a lot more fruitful in terms of its actual politics of building a coalition that that can win and sustain majority support. Yeah. I mean, I also feel like people are kind of essentializing sometimes, even good liberals who might not mean to. Like, I've had arguments with people where they say, oh, well, Trump's crackdown on immigrants is bad for business and that's bad because business is good. Like people can't find Americans to harvest their fruits and now farmers are mad about it. And I'm like, why can't they find Americans to harvest their fruits? And they like, they think that it's like something about Mexican culture or like the Mexican mind or something that makes them uniquely suited to working in the fields. Uh, Whereas it's very clearly just driven by material factors. Like these are jobs that you need people to do. People are criminalized. So they're not going to be able to ask for as much money. Like, I don't know. I I really think we need to fight against the idea of any of these things as being essential characteristics of people from other countries. And of the jobs as being essentially low wage. Yeah, that too. And there's a, cause there's this, I mean, the way racism really has worked throughout American history is by taking certain types of degraded labor required by the capitalist system and then racializing the people who are forced to do it as a way to legitimate the order that requires such horrific forms of labor exploitation. And you know, we can go all the way back to the 17th century when 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 slavery is defined around blackness specifically to 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 protect a form of of uh, of uh, of an economic system that was making humans into literal property. And and we definitely see that in the the early the early 20th century when Mexican migration begins to be recruited in 
in large number. There's the, the the Congressional Dillingham Commission, which does this huge report that lays the groundwork for the, the, the these huge immigration restrictions in the 1920. Um, they there's all this sense of like, we need to keep out the Asians and the the Italians and the Jews, but the economy demands Mexicans. And the way that some people think about this is that Mexicans can just come here, that they're naturally adapted to this low wage labor. And that they can just come here as just workers, but not as citizens. So um, the Dillingham commission says that Mexican workers were quote, providing a fairly adequate supply of labor while not easily assimilated. This is of no great importance as long as most of them return to their native land. In the case of the Mexican, he is less desirable as a citizen than as a laborer. And then in terms of like, so how the way that Mexicans get defined by the labor that, that they're doing a, uh, a major Los Angeles chamber of commerce official around the time, I think in the twenties says that agricultural work was best done by the quote, Oriental and Mexican due to their crouching and bending habits. Oh to which they are fully adapted, while the white is physically unable to adapt himself to them. Mm. So the idea that these agricultural jobs are inherently low wage and that inherently like Mexicans will do them and Americans won't is rooted in these deeply racist ideas that are fundamental to how we think about work in this country under capitalism. Yeah, that's race science. That's yeah. literally just race science. Yeah. Ugh. So I just had a few more questions. Um I yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the DSA's resolution in favor of open borders Mm -hmm. that passed overwhelmingly at the national convention this year, Um, because I think people are still not quite sure how the anti-capitalist left should relate to the progressive electoral sphere. Right. And this was, I think, sort of an imperfect attempt to do that and say, we will incorporate a candidate's position on open borders uh, into our electoral criteria. And I'm thinking like, unless someone's a full-on socialist, they're not going to be for open borders, which in my mind is the same thing as no borders. Um, but like, I don't, I don't know. What should, how should the anti-capitalist left engage with these questions as we try to kind of put our ha- get our hands dirty uh, in the electoral sphere and all the different places, all, all the different tools at our disposal. Well, you know, like I think of my support for open borders similar to the way that I think of my support for worker control of the means of production. It doesn't mean that either is a, a that signing on to either of those is a litmus test for me supporting a candidate. What is a litmus test is do you have a concrete set of of, of class struggle, anti-racist politics that definitively move us in that direction, whether that direction is work or control of the means of production or open borders. Um, you know, I, I think it's obviously I support the DSA resolution, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm very suspicious of, of the framing of all of these debates around open borders. Cause again, it's, con- it's the question that the right wing wants to talk about. Like, do you support, Oh, are you, in, are you arguing in favor of open borders? Which, which obscures the history. Like the fact that in, until the 1990s, the Mexican U S Mexican border could be crossed with relatively little difficulty without documentation. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, there was very little fencing. There were 3000 instead of 20,000 border patrol agents. So having, making the debate about whether one supports 
open borders, which of course I do, obscures the fact that borders as we know them today in the with on the US Mexico border are really really new and really really recent. Yeah, it's kind of an ahistorical argument almost. Yeah. Like like we can we can just we can also have let on the path towards open borders, we could just go back to having less fucked up borders maybe. That would be great. Like the old normal was not was just not like today. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll fucking take it. I mean, we haven't always had borders. Yeah. This is what a lot of what we talked about with Ross is that uh, the border, the idea of borders and the nation state arose from a specific set of material conditions in history. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago either um, with the rise of early capitalism and Therefore, I think they could pass away again through shifting conditions in future history. And you could argue that we only really have the the basic proto model of the border as we understand it today in the United States beginning in the late 19th century. Because before that, we have not so much a border, but a a settler colonial frontier. Mm -hmm. The way the U.S. is relating government and people are relating to its border up until that time is as the outward limit of an expanding American empire that is requiring the systematic dispossession of land from indigenous people and then taking half of Mexico in the mid-19th century with the Mexican-American War. And so it's only really once the continental empire is completed that there's then this shift back to thinking about the external limit not as an expanding frontier but as the front as as the the final line of defense of fortress america yeah uh man i hate america fucking i'm so tired i'm sorry uh, so this is this is a lot i feel like we've given people a lot to digest um so like when we're talking about these issues, especially in political campaigns, um, how do we get quote unquote regular people to understand all of this and to understand how uh, giving more rights and status to immigrants benefits everybody? And I think I mean not everybody, yeah. but every working class person. Yeah, I think we like so many things, we don't get them there through argumentation. I think that the argumentation in my book, the argument, the kind of discussion that we're we're having right now on this this podcast, is probably more to to deepen the analysis of people who are already on our side politically. I would say that's true, and that the way that the way that you make big shifter, big shift, the big shifter. What does that mean? Big shift changes in in realigning politics more generally has to be more led through through practice through practice through practice yes you said the thing uh it's just true like you know it's like um you know there are i'm sure like arizona 2010 that's where the hot that's the, that's the hot epicenter of anti-immigrant politics in the U.S. with the passage of SB10, this brutally anti-immigrant law. So Arizona becomes to anti-immigrant politics what California was in 1994. There are a lot of reasons that hap- that's happening, including that Arizona becomes a huge magnet for white migrants from the out from around the United States. Phoenix, Maricopa County 
where Sheriff Joe Arpaio was, becomes one of the fastest growing counties in the world. Who's building all these houses? Well, a lot of Mexican workers are building these houses. And so they're required as laborers, but then deemed impossible as fellow citizens and people going to school and neighbors and people going to and classmates of people of people's children, etc. And anti-immigrant politics become a core part of white white conservative politics in Arizona in general. And then Arizona becomes one of the states with a massive teacher strike in the whole Red for Ed movement. And my bet, and I haven't read anything analyzing this, but I've talked to a few people about it. My bet is that a lot of teachers who had whatever opinion about immigration prior to the strike had their politics transformed by being part of this broader left populist moment. And the liberal thing is to always fixate on racism as bad ideas in people's heads. And it is that too. Or like some immutable fact of human nature. Right. I've heard that one bandied about. Right. Yeah. Like like saying Trump won between because of racism is true, but not telling you very much. Mm-hmm. Because then it begs the question of like, well, why the racism? Mm-hmm. And, and racism has been in some sense a constant, but it, in a ver- but also a very dynamic force in American and world history. So, you know, I think we need to look to concrete, concrete political action and material circumstance to shift people's ideas. I don't think we're going to win them over through, through debate. And this is why, like, I think on a policy level, the, that the left can't shy away from a pretty maximalist defense of immigrant rights and support of demilitarizing the border, et cetera. But that's going to be, that's not going to be functional without a, with, if it's not paired with a universal class politics, because we have to be able to win people over to a different conception of who we, the people are, who we, the working class is, or else the right is going to consistently define it in white nationalist racial terms. And that is incredibly dangerous. That is, I'm always harping on this point, actually, about how, <clears throat> like, on some level, yes, we are having an identity crisis, at least in the first world, um, like, uh, particularly among like middle class white people. And we need like neoliberalism has broken down all of these old institutions like patriarchy, uh, organized religion, the family even, blah, blah, blah. And the answer to that is not to bring these institutions back because most of them were horrible and oppressive. The answer to that is to create a new kind of working class identity that is internationalist and multicultural and, you know, global as well as local. Like people need to be talking to each other in their communities. They can't just be atomized in their rooms anymore, like staring at the internet. And that's going to be really fucking difficult. But I don't think impossible. Um, And it's like, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Like we need community in order to defeat capitalism, but capitalism destroys community. Um, And I don't really know the answer to that, but I think it's crucially important. Um, Also, okay, so we always like to end on a call to action for people listening so they don't get depressed and hopefully they get out in the world and do things. So for somebody who's listening to this and is 
or has read your book and is feeling infuriated and wants to get involved, um, what what are what are some good ways to do that? I mean, it, d- almost anywhere someone's living, there is a local immigrant rights group fighting their localities, cooperation with ICE or organizing day laborers or to protect immigrants on the job and to unite immigrants and native born workers into, into labor unions. All of these things are, are important struggles. And I encourage people to get involved in those. I'm also just very generally enthused about the fact that the, that is, that a socialist presidential candidate might defeat the most anti-immigrant president in American history in significant history will if it if this happens history will record it as in large part due to latino voters rallying behind bernie and there's something beautifully poetic about that and there's also something really interesting about the fact that bernie released this very good very radical immigration platform but that was just a few months ago after latino voters emerged as a major part of a support base. So it wasn't this radical immigration platform that attracted the Latino voters in the first place. It was this universal working class program, which a lot of Latino voters saw themselves at the center of, saw themselves reflected in, because they are indeed at the core of the U.S. working class. So that is something I find incredibly inspiring, is the 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 lead role played by immigrant workers in remaking the American working class as a force for left politics in this country. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that. Hell yeah. I think that's a very good place to end it. And I usually ruin it by taking it somewhere pessimistic afterwards, but I'm not going to do that. So they leave us in the happy place. Yeah. Let's do that for once. Um, I feel like everybody hates it when I do the other things. So yeah, <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning guys. So um, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. On my show. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I think it was pretty interesting. Your book is very good. I have read like half of it, so I'm going to go home and finish it now. Nice. I mean, the book's three times longer than it was supposed to be, so you've read more than the entirety of what it was initially supposed to be. Oh, excellent. That's a lot. Yeah, I looked at at the description of this series that I guess I should say it's from Verso, right? Verso and Jacobin. Yeah, it's like short books. It's like short books. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, man, I feel it's like almost 300 pages long. I feel like a dummy. Like how, what length? You're like, book? what's a what's a normal length book? Yeah. Like 500 pages. I'm like, God damn it! <laughs> so that makes me feel a little better. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, did the whole asking for forgiveness rather than permission thing, and just kept writing the only book I knew how to write. That's good. I mean, sometimes it takes a little longer, and you're like giving them more for their money. Exactly. I got more for well, I didn't pay for it, but you guys all will if you go out and purchase it, which you should. Yeah, us in us in the. Uh, left media class we just get those books sent to us in the mail yeah yeah that's uh i built my house out of them that's that's, that's the life yeah <laughs> and, I, you, uh, and you can burn them to keep warm <laughs> yeah exactly i'm living rent free inside uh all of your heads or something i don't know uh yeah good job it's finished okay fucking everybody listen to the dig and buy daniel's book and join the fight for immigrant rights at the end <laughs>